0: This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. So the moment that really sticks out was when it had been three years
1: of visiting different providers looking for answers um, about the chronic pain that I was facing, and I had always been relatively patient and compliant, I suppose, with what they had asked and wanted me to try, but I'd gotten to the point where nothing worked, and so I was finally ready to, I think, push back a little more with my provider. I think I was 20, so I was still feeling kind of young and vulnerable, but it had been, the pain had become something that got in the way of me functioning day to day, and so I remember going into their office and saying, this is going to be something that keeps me from my social life and my professional life, and almost crying and saying, I can't leave here with another answer where we don't know something. And finally, she told me to like point at this image that she brought up, and it was just kind of a diagram of the female reproductive system, and so I point to where the pain is. And I pointed outside of the system, towards like the middle of a woman's legs, not um, the bladder, not the ovaries, or the uterus I pointed outside, and she finally recognized, like, oh, it's outside of you where the pain is, and I said yes, and then she knew, suddenly, vulvodynia, that was the word she came back with, and after that, it was all, um, uphill from there, getting answers, so.
0: Yeah. so welcome to Hell Stories, this is Nicole Deffenbaum. <laughs> In this podcast, we invite you, the listener, to hear the stories of patients and clinicians about their experiences navigating the healthcare system, and today I'm welcomed by Katie Scott, who is here to talk about her experiences with sex shaming and vulvodynia.
1: Hi, I'm Katie. I was recently or semi-recently diagnosed with chronic pelvic pain, Um, so I'm here to talk
0: some more about my experience during that diagnosis. Great. So thank you for being on the show. And you were telling us about the, so you've been through a lot in the past and you found a gynecologist, I'm assuming, who was able to diagnose you. Can you tell me a little bit about, a little bit of the history, kind of go back a little bit and uh, how you got to that point?
1: So I, when I first entered college, it was with my first serious partner. um, And that was when I first became sexually active and that this is, Like might feel like TMI, but it becomes super relevant because I thought maybe that was a source of my pain when it first started. Um, And so freshman year, when I started having this regular pain, I went to providers. And I think I saw two different gynecologists leading up to the one that diagnosed me um, or found the label vulvodynia. And in that process, I was also referred from those two gynecologists out with urologists um, general practitioners different people uh, they've attempted to diagnose uh, UTIs off and on they attempted to diagnose STDs off and on even though that wasn't really something I was at risk for and they at one point considered interstitial cystitis and diet changes so all of this kind of unfolded over three years throughout the whole time me having sporadic bouts of pain and I couldn't Attribute it to any instance. There was no dietary thing that seemed to trigger it. Uh, there was no certain moments where it happened or was worse than others. Uh, I couldn't even affiliate it with sex, which they kept trying me to get me to see if it was connected to physical intimacy, and it wasn't. Um, so it just became this random, unpredictable pain that was progressively worse. Um, and so it was just numerous co-pays and visits before we finally found the diagnosis and a specialist to treat it.
0: So can you tell me a little bit more about, so you you talk about this pain. What exactly were you experiencing? How would you describe it? So I wasn't sure at first either
1: because in my, in feels different for different people. Um, So some people say like the stabbing, burning, for me it was just pressure. Mm. Um, It's like a discomfort and a pressure. around my vulva and the closest thing I had experienced that pain before was a UTI so I thought at the beginning that it might have been a UTI because when you have urinary tract infections you have some pressure on your bladder um, and I, I knew it wasn't my bladder but I thought maybe it was just pain radiating so it, it was kind of like a pressure that was so uncomfortable though that it became a of pain like I and I called it a stomach ache for a while to friends and family and partners if I didn't want to explain to them where the actual pain was mm-hmm. um I would just say my stomach hurts and so that was for two years it was just I have a tummy ache was code for uh my vulva is in so much pain that walking hurts and a lot of women who have vulvodynia um will say that walking makes it worse being active makes it worse they'll find that certain positions they can like straddle or I've found, like, Kneeling on the floor and laying forward was one of the only positions where I felt that pain release. You mm-hmm. can't exactly go out if you're doing that So it was a pain that was it wasn't cry worthy, but it was stay home worthy yeah.
0: pain. And it sounded like it really affected your life um, for a number of number of years Yeah, so it uh, Obviously it affected
1: intimacy with partners if I was in pain, I wasn't interested Um, going out with friends, I would promise at the beginning of the day, yeah, we can go out later, but then if I can't predict when pain is going to be really bad, um, I would either have to stay home and cancel plans, or if I went out and we were, like, maybe dancing, um, I wouldn't dance, I would just sit at the bar, because dancing made it worse, and so then I looked kind of like the stick in the mud, just staying and still in one place, but it was, yeah, affecting quality of life, like walking to class, I lived on a campus where you had to walk really far to class, Mm -hmm. that hurt more some mornings than
0: others. Different stuff. It sounds like though that when you went to so I a few questions going back to the, the clinical part though, it sounds like when you went to the clinicians you had UTI, so is that what they started with the same thing? Or did they start with the sexually transmitted diseases? Where so
1: uh, a little bit of both, so I I did have UTIs as well off and on throughout this period, so occasionally those came back as positive, um, and that that was just a recurring thing as well, and that complicated the diagnosis further, because sometimes they'd be like, oh, well, we found it, and then, no, that just was a UTI that happened to be at the same time as me having vulvodynia. Mm. Um, different people started with different things. I remember specifically a health center on the campus where I was attending school, I went for a UTI diagnosis, uh, and they, because I knew what that one is. I thought, at that point, I knew what it was. I had UTIs before. I figured that was the only thing it could be, because I knew I wasn't at risk for an STD. And so I went in, and said, I have a UTI, I just need to get this diagnosed so I can get antibiotics. And they, I remember them saying, okay, and they got me scheduled, and then they took me, and they started drawing blood. And because I had UTIs before, I knew that wasn't how you diagnose a UTI through blood. Uh, And I I knew that that was weird, but then no one who drew the blood or met with me after the dreadful blood draw um, mentioned why. No one said it. And so I later put the pieces together. That was an STD test. Mm -hmm. But no one communicated that to me.
0: No one said anything.
1: No, not at all. And so I stopped at that point going to the University Health Center because I wasn't interested in a place that wasn't going to tell me why they were doing the procedure they were doing. So then I started seeing other gynecologists, um, and then they would try UTIs first just because like a pee test is cheap and easy, and why not test it? And then um, they tried STD a few times, and they would always bring it up, and I think they only drew blood maybe three or four times, but it was still excessive, I think, because during that time, the partners hadn't really changed. There was no new risk factor. They just kept looking there. Uh, and I, I don't know if that was a stigma of being a sexually active woman in the Southeast. I don't know if that's protocol, but I knew it was frustrating because it just continued sewing negative and I was still in pain. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. So I want to, I want to, um, kind of dig into this a little bit and unravel all these parts. And for our listeners, there's a lot of rain outside and some people moving around. So you might hear some doors closing and some, some rain falling. um, I want to thank you, though, for sharing this because one of the reasons I was really excited to have you on this podcast is because you're talking about something we don't talk about. And we often don't talk about our sexual health and we don't talk about, you know, um, any sort of concerns or issues that come up related to whether it be our sexual organs or whether it be anything related to um, sort of the taboo topics. You know, so mental health is often stigmatized, but also sexual health is as well. And so how do you, how do you have that conversation? And um, one of the things I'm thinking about as you're talking about the clinicians that you're you're seeing, so they start with, okay, you've had UTIs, let's check for that. When they couldn't figure anything else out, it sounds like they automatically went into, okay, let's check for STDs or STIs. Um Having worked with clinicians, I guess given you I've heard this before so given a person's age group or given their history, it might make sense that they they would do some tests right But what I'm hearing you say though is it wasn't just the tests it was that they continued to test for those same things is that is that correct? Yeah it's that and
1: just some of the the language they used as it added up became evident that, sexual activity turned into their primary concern when looking for pain like they, they, just, they seem to want it to be attributable to me being sexually active oh. and I would tell them um, I am sexually active but if it's one with one partner we are using protection it's safe um, I'm not a high-risk person like I, I knew about STDs I taught actually sexual health on my campus and so I I knew I wasn't a high-risk person by any standards and so after the several tests they at one point asked if my partner Saw anyone else and I said no he's we're monogamous and then they kind of asked again like are you sure? Which was just uh, one of those things where like I guess you can never be sure what your partner's doing when you're not around but yeah, I like to trust that that's the case and the implication after several STD tests that it might still be something based off my partner's promiscuity, um, or supposed promiscuity, which wasn't there, was just frustrating. It was disheartening that they they seemed to want the answer to be attributable to something I was doing. Um, They, at one point, after I was no longer with that partner, and I was still undiagnosed at, at this point, I had a new partner uh, and they said well maybe switching partners and that didn't make any sense because the pain had been happening with the one partner for a couple of years, but maybe switching partners is hurting you and it takes time for your sexual health system to adjust to a new partner uh, and they didn't really clarify what that meant but they said just here are some antibiotics and after sex every time you take these antibiotics and that will help. And of course it didn't because that wasn't the problem.
0: Did they say, uh, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, Katie, did they say why they kept giving you antibiotics? So none of the tests came back positive, but they were giving you antibiotics for what? Do you know?
1: They didn't know. They didn't know. They are like, UTIs, no. STDs, no. Um, it, and this was like a last-ditch effort of we don't know what's going on. Maybe like Maybe your vagina has to adjust to the bacteria that are new every single time. That was their logic, and that's all they explained to me. And I just remember thinking that kind of sounds like garbage, like why why is it that women just all of a sudden have to adjust, or people who are being penetrated, right, have to adjust to that partner instead of the other way around? That doesn't make sense that we just have to be punished for, like, I guess, having to adjust to bacteria when having sex with a person. That didn't connect in my head. Mm-hmm. And the more I researched it, because it wasn't relevant, that wasn't true, it just kind of felt like this. And I don't know that the provider meant it to be a, a blaming thing or a shaming thing, but it felt like one of those things where you choosing to be sexually active with someone new has brought this upon yourself, yeah. deal with it. Um,
0: well, and the term shaming is interesting because I, you know, having, having mentioned that, you know, so, so clinically going through all the steps to try to identify what's happening, and at the same time, though, it wasn't, well, let's just look into that, what are your thoughts? It was that, well, are you sure? Are you sure that your partner isn't doing, are you, you know, and so I, I think it's interesting and I, and to, to use that word, to be able to say how much of this is sex shaming, you know, that you are, um, a single, so I'm, I'm assuming, but unmarried individual, right, at this time who lived in the South. Um, Southeast you said and so as a result you're getting a lot of questions and assumptions about your sexual health and again not that it's not appropriate to ask questions right about your, your sexual health but you continue to say I'm with the same person in the same relationship for a long period of time you know I am not aware that my partner is they continue to test you so how, how long does this go on for would you say um
1: so I was with the partner when the pain started I was with the same partner dealing with the pain for two years and it just happened that the pain aligned with the time where I first became um, sexually active with that partner It, and so I was willing to consider what the provider said like I I appreciate that they have medical training I appreciate that they know things I don't I want them to be right because that's their job is to be right but then at the same time they're even in my job, like, I could be trained to do things the right way and still mess up. Um, and looking more at my condition, it's not common, it's it's something that would be difficult to find, and that turns into a broader conversation about just the diagnostic delay for most chronic pelvic pain conditions, um, but it, like, I was willing to tolerate it for a very long time, right? I pursued answers for three years, not giving up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was also able to do that because of privileges I had with health insurance and my parents being willing to help pay for things. Um, and I switched. I, I, I stopped going to that university health center once they kind of did the blood draw without telling me why. Uh, there was then a, a different gynecologist than the one who diagnosed me was the person who said um, maybe it's just every time you have a new sexual partner you're going to be in pain um, because there's a way even if that were the case. To, to deliver that information delicately and that's not what happened it it felt very much so like a if you would just stick with one partner and not be sexually active at all this wouldn't be happening
0: mm. wow.
1: so that's uh, manner, right <laughs> it yeah. matters
0: yeah it definitely does um i so going so think <laughs> I, I just want to pause again and and um just to be able to say that, um, appreciate you're talking about this because again, this is not something that people talk about. Um, and the fact that you're revealing the the long two, almost three year journey that you went through and having this conversation over and over again with clinicians, you had said before though, that it was something that you didn't talk with, with your family and friends. You talked about it as stomach pain. Can you talk a little bit about, um, a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Um, and so, I think this just goes back to, so there's a, some research I've done, and it talks about just, in general, menstruation, right, is still something that's stigmatized, and this will tie back in, in a minute, but menstruation is stigmatized. Mothers teach their daughters kind of what it is, and some girls might talk about it in school growing up, but it's it's still not largely talked about. Even if it's a health process, it's, we kind of say that, oh, I'm cramping, but you still don't say the word menstruation or the word, period, if you're in pain, right? You. You dissociate that experience and the pain or any problems with it from the reproductive region where it's happening because that's the dirty part um, and so I had like I knew that I my mom was a safe zone like so I told her what was going on and she helped me go through the diagnostic process which was good because I couldn't have paid for all the copays and tests on my own and um, And like sexual partners, I would talk about it with after a while, not very new sexual partners. But um, like if they had to see me for a while and there were certain nights where I was just in pain and had to twist myself into weird positions to deal with it, um, they needed to know. So the the people who were needing to know, I eventually disclosed what the pain was. Like it's in my vagina and they're like, is it like a bladder infection? No, I don't think so. It's outside of it. It doesn't make sense. Um, and they would just say okay and then from there on I still used the code that like once I told them what the code tummy ache means I still said my stomach hurts Mm -hmm. Um, and they came to know what that was and so it was one of the things because I also had to have that because it would hit in public so even the few people I felt safe maybe saying where the pain was and what was happening um, if it struck while we were grocery shopping and I was all of a sudden not being able to walk very well they would need to know what was wrong and I'd say my stomach hurts and I say okay. You know what that means. It's fine. Let's just get get out and get home.
0: Without naming names, did you ever come across anybody over all of these years who said, you know, I've had that, or I know of somebody who's had something like that, or, oh, that's interesting. I've had pain and always wondered what it was. Have you ever had that? No, okay. no. Um, I mean, I've everyone that you
1: talk to, um, and so most women that i've met with have been like i hurt sometimes like oh sometimes it hurts after sex or sometimes it hurts when i eat certain things or sometimes but it becomes kind of this monolith of pain like everyone's pain becomes the same thing as long as it's in this general region Mm
0: -hmm. below
1: the belt and above the knees um the pain kind of gets stuck all together and in some ways that's because it's like diagnostically if you look at Like irritable bowel syndrome and endometriosis and interstitial cystitis and chronic cramping during periods, like that, the symptoms kind of do all blend together. They are reported similarly. So I understand kind of that gray area. But with mine being external, I didn't find anyone who seemed to identify with it. Um, In my personal life and lay people, I didn't even find it online. Like I'm a pretty health literate person. I was online digging and didn't find anyone or anything and the doctors even, and this was the most disappointing part, was providers seem to also perpetuate just this vaginas and reproductive health in general, like all of that is just this kind of black hole, and we don't know how it works or what goes in and what comes out, and things just operate the way they do. Uh, Sometimes those things operate with pain, and we live with it. Mm. That was such an unsatisfying answer. Um, So... Yeah, no, I never in my time during getting the diagnosis found someone who understood it.
0: So so two quick questions, like follow-up. One, did you ever have a physician say to you, I just don't know, I have no idea what's going on, and, and send you on your way, or do you feel, or did you always get a prescription with, with, uh, with the we don't know what's going on?
1: Uh, if they thought it was UTI or STD, it was always, there was no follow-up, right? So you, you go in, you get the, give them the samples you leave, and then once you leave, they call you back if there's something, and if there's not, there's not. Um, and so at that point, if I wanted to follow up and push further, I had to go in proactively. Hmm. Uh, I remember at one point, we, that when I did find the guy in college that I liked, who ended up di- diagnosing me, um, I met with her, and she finally said, look, I don't I don't know, I don't know, because your UTIs are negative, your STPs are negative, you don't have anything else irregular going on, you're a healthy person, so I'm not sure. But here's this thing called interstitial cystitis, um, and you have to, like, eat this really restrictive diet to try and manage it, and she's like, this might be a thing, we don't know, we can't know, but you can try eating differently and see if that helps. Um, and she kind of gave that, like, sorry look in her eyes, but Mm -hmm. also, it's not her fault that she doesn't know, I guess.
0: But it sounds like the, the, the language and the communication was different, right? So it sounds like she started with, I, I don't really know. You've had the tests. They looked for different things. We, we tried all of these things, and I really don't know. We, we can continue to f- try to figure out what's going on. But it sounds like that's different than, well, you have to have an STI. We'll keep, we'll keep looking for it. We'll keep putting you on antibiotics. It sounds like the approach was different. The communication to you was also different.
1: Yeah, it was, um, from her, it was kind of a, we know that we don't know, yeah. right? Yeah. So we know for certain that you have something that is weird and not common and maybe idiopathic. We don't know what it is. Um, and if you look at the range of chronic pelvic pain diseases that you can't really understand fully, but can manage if you just kind of trial and error it, there's several. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was not attempt at an answer and then she's the one I followed back up with later and I was like look not eating tomatoes and not eating bread Isn't going to get rid of this pain um, Something else has to happen and then we found the diagnosis with the on um, the visual chart she read out.
0: So that was the second time you met with her
1: um, I think I have met with her before as well. It was the timelines a little bit blurry in my head I'd met with her at other points to get like birth control um, but I think it was the second or third time that I'd met with her just regarding the pain okay. and any time about met before the pain came up But it had gotten to a point where I would mention it's a thing that happens, but not really expect it to be addressed in that visit because No one else could figure it out either.
0: Right. Okay. Is that the um, longest you've been with the same gynecologist?
1: Yeah, yeah, oh, I'm actually okay. still seeing her. I've, I've since moved to another state and um, when I go back home, that's when I get my, like, PAP, and that's when I'll get my IUD change. I schedule it with my school breaks, mm-hmm. um, because I, I, I trust her now, and I like her, and it just is kind of a difficult thing to put yourself back out looking for another gynecologist when you know that you've had kind of bad experiences with a few, especially mm-hmm. when I went, I moved further south, and <laughs> I was like, that's even more concerning.
0: Yeah, Wow. And I know from other people, especially uh, having a chronic condition that's undiagnosed. We've had other people on the podcast, it's how do you find that person, that clinician, who's who's gonna take the time with you and ask you the questions and figure it out. And what struck me was when you said at the beginning, she asked you to point to the chart and that was the aha moment, where no one else had actually asked you to point to exactly where the pain is And it was pointing to this chart that you know all of a sudden all the light bulbs went off and everything sort of clicked for her Um, and i think that's really exciting and we'll we'll get to that in a minute so i'm thinking for all the people out there who are listening there are many of us um, who have pain uh, that don't know where it's coming from and i heard you talk a little bit about how you went online um, so, thinking a little bit about the health literacy moment, um, we just had a podcast on health literacy not too long ago. Um, what were some of the steps that you took and, and what did you learn from that process? Trying to find out what you had, and then when they did diagnose you, you know, what, did, what did you find out? And becoming more
1: health literate. So, I, it was kind of like a lifelong process that just happened to work out where it helped me um, when I had something worth finding. For myself, so I was super dissatisfied with the sex education I'd gotten growing up. Um, was in rural East Tennessee, very much so abstinence only, and regardless of your feelings about abstinence, that that's one of the only opportunities for young people to learn in sex education. That's one of the only opportunities for young people to learn some more about their bodies. And if you're saying, well, knowing about your body doesn't matter because you're not going to use those parts of you then you kind of end up just blind and unaware of how you function and that's not healthy regardless of whether or not you're sexually active. So I was really disappointed with that growing up and then when I got to college, um, there was a volunteer group that it was just a bunch of students who went and educated other students on health issues and they worked with the university to educate them on health issues like sexual health, um, how to know when you've overdosed on alcohol and how to be an active bystander in those situations. Um, healthy relationships, and that was when I really was emphasizing sexual health when I taught it. I was curious about that. I liked that. I wanted to provide more people that information. Um, students seemed receptive to that information when you came and told them because they were actually learning something that they thought they could use. Um, and so that I, I kind of learned through that app program before I even realized I needed that information more about sexual health, and what are signs of STDs, and what are risk factors of STDs, um, how does bacteria or something enter in and out of people's bodies through sex or through other, uh, ways, and so that kind of helped me process, like, I know why I'm getting blood drawn when they do it, and don't tell me, I know that I'm not at risk for STDs, and they're kind of wasting their time with this, and so that's what prompted me to then get more online, Mm. Interest, right? So I went online and started looking for answers outside of the things the doctors were telling me, because I'd gotten an education on those things that told me the doctors were not doing what they needed to. Um, as for online, I it was weird. Different answers came up, endometriosis came up. Um, UTIs kept coming up because I said like pain, um, and I didn't know how to even describe it because I didn't like I wasn't even super familiar with the language of the vulva, like. I knew that's what it was, but it the idea that just that area of skin could be in pain um, was foreign to me. I didn't think that was a thing that happened. It was just, right? It's like uh, if all of a sudden the skin on your elbow started hurting in my mind, that's what it was like. And that's not something people just experience. So I kept trying to word the pain in my own language when doing these like searches on WebMD And I couldn't even articulate my own pain or my own body. And so the searches weren't super productive.
0: Yeah, and so how do you you search for the thing that you don't know what it is, right? I'm hearing you say, like, there's this pain on this part of my body because we don't talk about it. You know, so so as a clinical communication specialist, there's all these books I've been um, looking up and reading clinical communication skills. Um, Daniel Ofrey has What Patients Say and What Doctors Hear, um, Doctors Talking with Patients, Patients Talking with Doctors. There's all these different books, and one of the things that keeps coming up is if clinicians aren't comfortable talking about sex, then they're going to be even less comfortable having that discussion with their patients. And think about it, when in our history, is this topic really embraced other than a class that you have, you know, in elementary school or middle school? You know, where do we get our sex education? And I'm hearing you say that. You know, you found a group on your campus, right, that was addressing this. And I think that's, you know, a great place to start and for people who are listening. Where in the institution that you're at, or even the organization, um, especially if it's in healthcare or related to, you know, institution of higher education, where are these conversations happening? You know and the conversation not just about sex and reproduction but the conversation about our bodies and about our sexual health and you know where are we talking about these things and so I'm hearing you say that we lack sort of the the language but also the comfort you know and you were embarrassed to talk to others and, and when do we get to that point of as a society to feel comfortable so to, to make sense for this for our listeners one of the things I'm hearing, and I might be putting words in your mouth, Katie, <laughs> is to be able to find that point where you feel comfortable and, and get to that point where you confine in somebody that you know, find a, a doctor that you're comfortable talking to, but it also sounds like you had to get to that point to be an advocate for yourself and say, you know what, I, I don't know what's going on and I'm embarrassed too, but we've got to do something.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's, I think it's pretty... Gendered, like I get the the vibe, and I have a brother, and he's kind of affirmed this too, that men are taught about their bodies and the way they operate, whether or not they plan on being sexually active, right, like we just kind of assume they need to know how to use the things below their belt, and they should know how to take care of that um, from the beginning, and I think for a lot of women, like it's, the, you don't need to know how any of this works until you start using it for sex. So for now, just kind of pretend it's not there.
0: Oh, you know?
1: wow. Yeah, that
0: definitely uh. rings true. Yeah, and it was um, just for those who are, are listening, I, I even found it in here. There was a, a specific um, entry, and I'm opening, actually, to the book because I was just reading about this. There was some research, and it, it talks about... Um, the discomfort. This is from the communication, clinical communication skills. Um, there were some studies that were done here, and they talk about physicians having little confidence or feeling embarrassed discussing sex and sexuality. Um, and what they found in this information is, um, in some of the research, they found barriers to this discussion was language comprehension problems, but also insufficient training, ethnic differences. Um, the patient had no genital complaints, fear of embarrassing the patient, you know, so all of these different reasons that we don't have these conversations um, and the importance of doing it. So how did how did you get to that point? What what happened? What clicked for you that you were like, that's it, I, I you know, I need you to hear me out, I need to, or was or, or it more, it sounds like it was more of a, a process over time?
1: I mean, I think it was, I think it was a process, like I was always fairly comfortable answering questions um the idea of asking questions I, I never knew in many visits what questions to ask so they always ask do you have any questions for me and I, I don't know what to ask um and so the learning process it was just becoming frustrated with my own experience becoming um reflecting on some of the things they'd said and done in practices and saying that's not okay that actually actually is kind of maybe sex shaming and and maybe sexist and Becoming frustrated with that as well frustrated with my own pain. I kept waiting for it to go away. Um, And it was no matter if I was sexually active at the time with one partner or not sexually active at all or drinking enough water to avoid a UTI. Like I was doing all the right steps and testing all the things and nothing helped. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just, the, the motivation to learn more and then to become more assertive with my provider, it was just a matter of my own frustration. And that's why, I, I mean, the, the only time I came near tears in a provider's office was the time where they finally brought out that picture and said point where the pain is, like let's try this again. Um, and it was amazing, like I said before, I'm certain that the pain feels like it's outside. It doesn't feel like it's inside. It doesn't feel like it's my bladder. It's not just painful when I pee. It's not just painful after sex. It's random and it's outside. Um, And for some reason it took me nearly crying in the office for that to become worth, like that message to become something we should look further into. Mm.
0: You had mentioned questions that you you didn't know what questions to ask when they said, do you have any questions? So for people listening and thinking of tips and advice that you might offer, what are some questions that you figured out that um, were worth asking?
1: Um, I think it's a matter of, what questions to ask as well as what information to emphasize. Um, So a lot of the time they told me to just keep tracking, track when the pain happens, keep along and find the pattern. And sometimes there's no pattern and that's okay. And you need to tell them that. And I, I tried to, and I was like, well, maybe I'm just missing. Maybe I'm not looking close enough. And it got to a point where I had to be like certain that I knew my own body well enough. I knew my own pain well enough. And I I knew I was smart enough to know that the pattern wasn't there. Hmm. There was no pattern with sex or drinking water or eating the right foods. Um, It was random. And being able to emphasize that by the end of it was important. Um, Questions like why are you drawing blood, obviously. Hmm. Each time someone's taking fluids from you, I think you have a right to know why. And I never even thought about that as being worthwhile to ask. Um, That's great advice. yeah, what STDs are you testing for and how likely is that really that it's the case if... And it, it may just be reemphasizing that you're the expert of your own body because it... I read something somewhere where someone was saying that, you know, providers will say, well, I went to school for X years and so I know this. It's like, okay, but I've, I've lived my whole life with this pain and you haven't. So you may be the expert in the diagnostic process, but you're not the expert in experiencing this pain. You're not the expert and tracking it and the way it works in my schedule um and so it was a matter for me of both being able to ask the questions of why and expect an answer mm-hmm. and being able to push when they gave me an answer that i or told me
0: to do something that i knew wouldn't help mm. so here so you know your body mm. right better than anyone else does um trusting your gut is what i'm hearing you say too um, anytime that there's a test or anything that they do to you to your body to ask about it And, and we had a podcast on in health insurance makes me think about the person who said you should be asking because not every test is necessary Right, yes. so we have this it sounds like on some level these were unnecessary tests potentially over time right maybe by the second year um, You know, so those are all good questions to ask Um, Any other advice that you would offer for people listening, especially if they, um, I'm thinking for anybody, male or female, in terms of um, any sort of pain that may be related to um, sex, sex, sexual um, uh, organs or reproduction?
1: Yeah. um, So it's pain in general, right? We communicate in metaphors, the stabbing, the burning, the pulling. And that makes it difficult to communicate. And so I think becoming familiar with being able to articulate your pain in detail, like if it's stabbing, where is it stabbing and how hard is it stabbing? Because I'm guessing most of us say we have a stabbing pain, but we haven't been stabbed in the past, right? Mm-hmm. But somehow we know what that metaphor means, somehow that registers mm-hmm. in our mind. So becoming familiar with how you would describe your pain mm-hmm. and being able to do that in detail um, keep your log of when the pain comes up and if you can affiliate it with something you're eating or doing that's great but if you can't if it's not related to when you have sex don't let someone tell you that it is it okay. it you might look for answers because they're trying to help right but they might look for answers in the wrong places and if you know it's in the wrong place have that documented right in a log so you can show them, like, I've, I've got this log. This is when I'm having sex, and this is when the pain hits. This doesn't line up. Yeah. Um, and then I, it's hard to overcome some of the stigma of talking about sex, especially when the people who are supposed to be most comfortable talking about it, like your doctor, are reinforcing that it's awkward. Like, they're reinforcing that it's um, maybe taboo. And especially, I think, for maybe younger people, maybe especially younger women, and I'm sure that sexual orientation and gender identity intersects with these experiences, but there's a shame with doing it, with having sex prior to marriage maybe, mm-hmm. or having multiple partners, and so I think that would've been more even more complicated. Like if I hadn't been monogamous, that would've given these providers even more of a reason to be like, oh, STDs, yeah. sure. So I think just being educated, Know the risk factors for different things they're telling you you might have, and know if those apply to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when they are saying something applies that you know doesn't, be willing to tell them that.
0: Yeah. And I appreciate you bringing up age, too, um, because it's definitely, I would think, for individuals who are younger, um, who may not have the voice or the language or the advocacy, um, maybe, but... You know, I'm also can't help but think about the um, percentage of individuals who are over 65, and we're talking about seniors too who have very similar, in, in different ways, but also have a lot of stereotypes and stigma for individuals who are older who are having sex. And so you have, you know, um, they're sexually active as well in in their own homes in a senior center. You know, so it, it's it's something that you know if if our whole society, especially our medical community as well, can become more comfortable having these conversations, um, listen to the person, and know what questions to ask, and and uh, shared decision making is a term that comes up. Um, any advice that you would offer for the clinicians um, who may be listening as well? Sort of a recap of some of the things that you had talked about.
1: Um, I think challenging some of your own assumptions that you may not even realize are there helps. So there's stereotypes that, you know, and you said older people, like, that they might complain about the, like, the least pain, um, and sometimes women get that too, and women get kind of both, both ends of the stick, like, we would, we're too weak to handle pain, so we treat, we seek treatment for it sooner, because we're weak, but also, we should be able to manage extreme levels of pain because we can experience childbirth, and that's terrible, right? Mm-hmm. So you kind of get both ends of that, like how much should we be able to manage stick? Um, and so I think for me, it was important for physicians and clinicians to know that A, your perception of my pain is less important than my experience of it. Um, B, you, your understanding of how much I should tolerate before seeking treatment is less important than... My telling you that I need help, Um, and then challenging maybe, too, the idea that we should look for the most common thing first, especially not every single time, and certainly there's an efficiency matter to checking for UTIs and STDs first, Um, and when you're in med school, there's an efficiency matter to studying the common stuff instead of the rare vulvodynia cases. Um, but if you're trying to establish your medical knowledge and practice based on what's the common good and how can I do the most good for the most people, you leave some people out who are also in desperate need of help. And so this kind of, I felt very much that, like these providers didn't even know the word vulvodynia to offer it to me as a potential thing to research because it was rare and why would they know it? There was one person in Tennessee that treated it and I had to mm-hmm. kind of seek that person out. Um, after they told me what the label was for what I might have. Um, and so for rare conditions, you providers need to be willing, I think, to seek those proactively more because patients aren't always going to be able to advocate for themselves.
0: Right, yeah. Yeah, maybe, and, and, you know, to start with what may be most common for that demographic, right? Right. But at what point do you start asking the other questions? And, and, and it can be harder if there isn't sort of that continuity with the same provider and your story follows you right and so to be able to think outside the box too but Katie something you had mentioned when I first met you is that it's not actually as rare as you had thought um can you talk a little bit about what you found in terms of vulvodynia so just in general what I think is coming to
1: light more now is that it's Mm underreported and maybe misdiagnosed a lot um and a lot of women who have these symptoms do just accept for their lives that sometimes they're in pain. That's normal. Um, and so there's research that shows it's, it's becoming more common, but mostly because people are seeking treatment sooner, providers are providing treatment sooner. Um, I think we're kind of in a stage as a country and a generation where we're teaching women to take more control of their reproductive health and to not accept pain as normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as that happens, we're going to see more diagnoses of things that might have previously been considered rare um, and see that they're not as uncommon as we think. And technically, vulvodynia isn't a condition, right? It's a symptom of that can come from many different conditions, um, but it's considered like this uncommon thing. It's not something you hear about much. Um, and then, like, mine is idiopathic, so it, I just use vulvodynia as my condition label because it's not attributable to, like, oh, this vulvodynia, the silver pain is connected with another chronic pain condition. Um, like, my symptom is my condition, but mm-hmm. the entire idea that that doesn't have a name yet, right? Yeah. It's changing. I think that's changing. I think we'll see more people seeking treatment and deciding that living in pain isn't what they have to do. Um, I think our statistics for reporting cases like these will be different.
0: Yeah, and whether vulvodynia is something that is underreported or whether it's something that, you know, we're just learning more about. Um, Again, the more we talk about conditions and um, symptoms that aren't discussed, we might end up revealing more and learning a lot more. Um, I can't thank you enough for being on the show, Katie. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. Um, so if our listeners want more information, um, Vulvodynia, uh, do you have any resources or sites that you have gone to? So that's, There's not a whole lot of sites out there right now.
1: Um, I think there's like a Vulvodynia Association site that has some information and collects some research articles. Um, and I think there are some support groups forming. I haven't sought them, okay. mostly because when I finally found my label and treatment, mine went essentially away with regular treatment. Mine has dissipated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's other people who have more trouble managing Virginia, and so they have support groups for their ongoing pain. Yeah, excellent.
0: So thank you for being on the show. Thank you to our listeners for listening. Uh, we encourage you to like us on Facebook. And you can also find us on castos.com. Uh, please feel free to and send any messages to nicoledeffenbaugh.com blog. We look forward to hearing your comments and inviting you on the show if you're interested. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh with Health Stories.